0: Yeah, you were busy talking. Yeah, Rich, turn me up so that Jeff can hear me. Okay, folks, if you can find your seats. Oh, wait, everybody has a seat. We're going to start in just a a few seconds. So let me welcome you to our worship service. My name is Eric Gustafson, and I'm looking forward to leading you in worship today. You know, today is the last Sunday of the year, 2020, and probably everybody's saying... Yay! You know, it's been been quite a year. And at the end of the year, we almost always look back and, and uh, just evaluate the year that we've been through. And this year, that's probably an interesting experience. Um, you know, for some of us, um, it's actually been a good year. Some of us introverts love 2020 because it's social distancing. You know, I'm, I'm Scandinavian, and I saw a meme that said, um, wait. Wait. We're going to, uh, uh, we can hardly wait until the two meter distance is lifted. We can go back to our usual five meter distance. <laughs> so anyway, it's been quite a year, but you know, it's, though some there's been some good in it, there's been a lot of things that have been hard. Every one of us has lost something this year. We've either lost some or all of our livelihood, um, we've lost loved ones, we've uh, had milestones, major milestones in our lives that have either been canceled or made virtual. Um, our relationships have suffered. We've become disconnected to the people that we love. Connections with family and community have been awkward, meaning Zoom, right? Um, we've just lost a lot of things this year that make life worth living, and so that's a difficult thing. But today, I want us also to look back and see God at work in your year. You know, we know that God has been our provider this year. He's been a healer. He's been a comforter. God has been sovereign in all of this. He's been our strength. He's been our Savior. He's been our Redeemer. You know, um Sue Beth and I very often pray in the morning before we get started on a day, and we pray through the needs and the hurts of our family and our friends And we pray about the mess that our world is in, just the injustice and corruption in it, the dysfunction in our governments, our culture, even the church and our families. But this year, so I've ended almost all my prayers this year with, Lord, today we choose to put our trust in you. You are our only hope. And so today as we look back and remember 2020, I want you to see... I want to acknowledge what you have lost. It's been hard for you, and it's not trivial. But I hope that you'll also see God's faithfulness, not just his general faithfulness, but that he's been faithful to you. So let's stand. If you're able, let's stand and let's worship together as we look back and we remember all that God has done. Now I'm going to read a psalm that ran across recently that I think might be appropriate for today, Psalm 32. And I'm just going to read the whole thing, and we'll see what the Lord has to say for us as we consider the year that's gone by and how he's been faithful in it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Let me just stop. That includes all of you, if you've come to Christ for your redemption. Your sin is forgiven, your sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally... I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the flood waters of judgment. For you, Lord, are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathways for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure.
1: Good morning. Welcome to Three Legacy Evangelical Free Church. We're excited that you're here. My name is Ian. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, you guys are looking pretty good for like two days after Christmas. Usually it's confused, not sure what day of the week it is and full of cheese, right? But. We're doing all right. A um, couple of announcements. Uh, there is coffee this morning, so after the service, if you'd join us downstairs, we would love for you to uh, have a cup of coffee and um, just fellowship. Um, and there is no youth group this week, so that's the other announcement. This would normally be the time that we would pass around the plate. We haven't done that in nine months, so that's fun. Um, but it's been cool to see God's faithfulness through these hard times for lots of people, and, and he still is on the throne. So, um, If you want to give, you can give online at our website, you can give through text, or you can give at the plates uh, out on the table at the back. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, thank you for this day, and thank you for time together, Lord. And even though this year has been um, very difficult in lots of ways, we... We praise you for your sovereignty and your love for us, Lord. We thank you that um, your son came, that Emmanuel is a reality, God with us. We ask that you would help us to live with that every day, Lord. We ask your blessing on the rest of our worship service, our time together. Help our praise to be sincere. Help our, um, our fellowship also to be sincere, Lord. And just, we ask for your spirit to, to move here among us. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Let's continue as we worship and focus on the faithfulness and sovereignty of our God. If you can and you want to, please stand up and let's worship together.
1: Would you uh, bow your heads again with me? Dear Jesus, you are our cornerstone, Lord. And we thank you for that, that truth, Lord. We ask your blessing on us as we delve into God's word, Lord. And um, may, our, may our minds be firmly set on you as we think through what your word has to tell us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's just after Christmas, and Christmas is like my favorite holiday. And uh, if you you beg my wife, sometimes she has some kind of video of me screaming about Christmas, which is pretty great, so you should ask her about it. But I love Christmas, and one of the things as a kid that I loved about Christmas was going to my grandparents' house in, in Madison. So we'd go down to Madison, and we'd get there Christmas Eve usually, and we would we would eat a great great meal always a good meal aunts and uncles were there grandpa and grandma me and my two brothers um, and my parents and it was a really great meal but we were really looking forward to presents right and that was going to be later on in the evening but that didn't didn't happen didn't happen right after supper right after supper was this time that we we didn't we enjoyed it a little bit we didn't love it and that was because all of the my parents and all the adults would do the dishes, and <clears throat> I'm really, I probably shouldn't say this, because what's going to happen is I'm going to have to do dishes next year, but my parents never had me do dishes, or or my brothers, which was great, but we were always anticipating the presents. And so we would get up from the dinner table, and we would go into the living room, and we'd have to, like, rearrange the entire room so everyone had a specific spot where they could sit, and all their presents would be piled right next to them. And it was, it was a really fun thing for us, because we'd, like, shake every present that was ours and we'd be able to look at like our pile and be like, man, I got way more than you and this is way better. And um we had tons of fun anticipating Christmas, um, even though that we wanted our presents. But that that time in between was was just just a fun time. And I I think fondly of it at Christmas. Today we are after Jesus' birth we're in Luke 2:21 through 40 is where we're going so if you have your bibles you can start turning there but the people that are in this passage really um were anticipating the savior coming and we're going to focus on on them a little bit today so we're going to we're going to delve in um Luke 2:21 I'm reading out of the um, NIV it's the same as your pew bible so it, it should be pretty easy to follow along On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the laws of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of doves, or two young pigeons. So Jesus is born, right? And the Jews had this custom that was, it was written about in um, the Law of Moses that all males had to be circumcised. And I'm not going to get into that, but all I have to say is, sons, men, I'm really glad that we live in the day and age that we do because um, fathers usually would do the circumcision at home. So, you know, just saying, it's great that we live where we live. Um, so this was another sign that the Lord used to show that Israel was set apart, that they were a people that were holy. And so that's what happened. Um, Jesus was named Jesus, and um, his name means to deliver or to rescue, um, which is an awesome name because that's, that's what he did. Um, In Leviticus 12, we find all of these different purification rites. So you've got the eight days at home, and this passage kind of combines two large chunks of time, the first eight days, and then also 30 days after the mother of a newborn was deemed impure or unclean. And so that whole household kind of had to stay at home. They were no longer a part of society for those days. At the end of those days, they would go to the temple, and they would have to sacrifice to purify themselves. Now, in the law, it talks about if you are wealthy enough, you should sacrifice a lamb or a goat. Mary and Joseph, they were quite poor, evidently, because they didn't sacrifice a lamb or a goat. They instead did the opposite and sacrificed doves, which is what the law says. If you are poor, that's what you're supposed to do. Again, this points to Luke focusing on the humility of Jesus' birth and his upbringing. If we um, look in verse 23, it says, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Now, when we think of that, if you are a Jew reading this in the first century, you're going to immediately snap back to First Samuel, or, uh, yeah, First Samuel, where... Samuel, the final judge, is born, he's consecrated at the temple, and he stays there. He lives in the temple, and he becomes pretty much the the keeper of the temple there. Jesus doesn't do this. He lives in Nazareth eventually, but this points to him kind of being put together with Samuel, so kind of a little bit of a comparison, and this continues throughout the passage where he's compared over and over again to different people, which is always interesting. We're going to continue in the passage. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do... uh, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for our glory to your people, Israel. So Simeon's an interesting character. There's not really a lot that's written about him. There's not any other mention of him in the Bible, pretty much. And, um, yeah, there's not really much that anyone knows about him. He is described as devout and righteous, and that's his, like, that's his key characteristic. Um, it's kind of maybe implied that he was old, because it says that he was kind of waiting for the, for the Savior to come, and then he was ready to, ready to die. He was at peace with that. that's implied. No one's really sure how old he was. He was in the temple at that appointed time. It says that the Holy Spirit came upon him to to take him to the temple for that. He could have been a priest. Some people think he was a priest. Some people don't think he's a priest. He's just a guy who's prophesies about what what is going to happen. Um, We see that he declares Jesus' salvation for all, not just Israel. He brings up Israel's consolation. And this is this is an interesting idea. Um, Israel had been waiting for so long for their kingdom to come back, to be a thing again, um, and to be no longer under the Romans. And he really he really is praising God for that. But he he doesn't end here with this When we look at Jesus' life, and especially his ministry, he spends three years wandering Israel, preaching, giving signs, doing lots of things. But as he's doing that, he's really upsetting the status quo in Israel. I mean, you think about the Pharisees, you think about the Sadducees, you think about the Romans. And as he does that, Tons of people, I mean, by by the time of his death and his resurrection, tons of people have fallen from power. Tons of people have taken up power. And really this uh, this climaxes in 70 A.D. with the temple being destroyed by the Romans. Jesus' life just moves the entire world, even before really Christianity takes off. Simeon ends the prophecy with, um, with something to Mary, telling her future pain as well as future glory. Now enters our final character in this little section, a woman named Anna. And Anna is a very interesting person. Anna is a prophetess. And there are not too many prophetesses talked about in the Bible. Um, this is a woman who spoke God's truth, um, and and did it well. Evidently, the most famous prophetess is a woman named Deborah in Judges. Um, she is known for helping a man named Barak take out a major enemy of Israel. Um, Barak at one point is ordered to do something. He only will do it if Deborah comes along because he's afraid, and so Barak doesn't get the glory for. Taking out one of Israel's enemies, instead, a woman um, takes out this enemy general named Cicero. So it's, it's interesting. but let's let's continue. verse 36. There was also a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanael of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was eighty four. She never left the temple. Worship night and day, <coughs> excuse me, fasting and praying. So this is this is the only setup for her. No one ever hears anything else about her. One second, I'm gonna grab my water bottle. No one else ever hears anything else about her. No one says anything else about her. But we have a little bit more context about who she is than Simeon. So it says that she's been widowed 84 years. This can be translated two different ways. One, she's either been a widow for 84 years or she's 84 and a widow. Okay? So if she's been widowed for 84 years, it's assumed that she was 13 or 14 when she got married. She was married for seven years, never married again. So that means this woman is over a 100, so if you take it that way. Or she's 84, which at this time, the life expectancy was like 40 or 50. So either way, she's quite elderly, and she had lived in the temple for a long time. She's evidently a devout believer um, in in the Messiah's coming, and she spent her time praying and and worshiping. So in verse 38, it says, Coming up to... To them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This is really the first public declaration of the Messiah. We think about the shepherds, right? They were running through Bethlehem and they were praising God about the Messiah's coming. But this is in the temple. So she's a woman, right? So either she had to be in the outer court, which is the Gentiles, or the inner court, which is the woman's court, not all the way in the temple proper. So this is packed with people. It's not just them standing there. It seems like the the conversation with Simeon was very much private. It was them just talking to each other. But instead, this time, Anna walks up and starts praising God in the middle of the court. All kinds of people there. And she's identified as a prophetess, which... In the Bible, Israel has always taken very seriously what a prophet is and what a prophet isn't. And if you're not a prophet, bad things happen if you say that you are a prophet when you are not. So, evidently, she they know who she is, they know what she's saying, and she's doing it publicly. This is the first declaration of the Messiah, which, on one level, might be a kind of dangerous thing for a a little boy. Um, But we see that Nothing happens, and this is, this is God being faithful and showing Mary and Joseph, yeah, guess what, all the things that you've been told, they're going to happen. They're going to happen, and this is the Messiah. The passage ends with verse 39 and 40. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, <coughs> to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So this final section seems kind of anticlimactic for like describing Jesus' childhood, right? The only other time that we talk about his childhood is the next passage, which is when he's 12. So between the ages of 0 and 12, we know that he gained favor with God and grew in wisdom, and that's, that's about it. I'm hoping that my uh, memoir has a little bit more about my first 12 years, but it's all right. Um, we see, again, some mirroring, maybe. Um, if we look at verse 80 of chapter 1, when, ta- when describing John the Baptist, it says, "...and the child grew and became strong in spirit and lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel." So his childhood also in his memoir is pretty short, but it's all right. Um, We see, again, strong and strong. Um, Both of these men would go on to do amazing things in Israel, but not much is said. This passage also sets a precedent for how Luke describes godly men. If you look in Acts 6-8, it talks about Stephen in the same way, who was one of the first first strong Christians. He was also uh, the first martyr. So we get to the end of this passage and we start asking the question, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for, um, or like what what is God trying to tell us in our own lives? Well, number one, this passage points to the fact that when we look at Mary and Joseph, their raising of Jesus, their journey to this point. It's been humble. It hasn't been wealthy, it hasn't been it hasn't been easy. but we see that they are um, we see that they are praised for their godliness and their faithfulness and the people that they run into on this way are devout. So it sets up the rest of Jesus' life where humility and godliness will be treasured over wealth and status. You think through the Sermon on the Mount and all of those different blessed are four statements that are there. Uh, Matthew 5 is is where you can find that. And every single one of those people, it doesn't say blessed are the strong. It says blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Jesus' life will be set up in this this way and that's what his kingdom is going to look like. Number two, peace sometimes comes through struggle and strife but following God following God will be worth it. You think of all the things that Mary's told. She's told that her son will be a great king, right? The Savior. But there's also this warning that Simeon gives about a sword piercing her own soul. And we think through all of her life, all of the things that she goes through, she follows God well, and Jesus' death, is, it's going to be hard. But he rises, and there is that third day. When we think about Anna, there's a piece that is that is very interesting. She's from the tribe of Asher, and Asher was one of these tribes that were taken by the Assyrians and they were scattered. They were gone; no one knew where they went. Um, but she somehow is there. So either she, her family, hid out and stayed there, or they somehow got back. But as um, as part of this tribe, her father's name is Phaniel, which, you know, I don't think I would really enjoy that name, but it's all right. Phaniel means either to see the face of God or face to face with God. And it points back to the place where Jacob wrestles God, right? Well, yeah, he wrestles an angel, but he wrestles with God. And that place is called Phaniel with an E. It's a little different, but it's about the same but she comes face-to-face with God. So Anna, daughter of face-to-face with God, sees God and prophesies of him. And these two people understand the reality of the Messiah's presence in their world right there. When we think of Israel's anticipation of the Messiah coming, we think about going all the way back to Genesis, where God promises that there will be a Savior who will come and crush the head of the serpent, even as his heel is bruised. And we continue on through Israel's history to Abraham. And Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son because he knows that there's a resurrection coming. And we look at Moses and their all their time in the wilderness going to the promised land. And even a bronze servant being lifted up and only saving those who are bitten by looking at it, by trusting in it. And we continue on to the judges when all these people, they had no, there was none of them that were following God. There were only two people. Ruth and Samuel were the only ones that weren't doing what was right in their own eyes. And you continue on and they want a king. So they ask Samuel, We want a king. So Samuel gives them Saul, who looks like the perfect king. I mean, he's taller than everyone else. I mean, that is the perfect king. But he's not. He's horrible. He's not a great king. So then they have David. And David is a great king, but he tries to build a house of the Lord, and God says, no, you've got blood on your hands. And he messes up in tons of horrible ways. And then you have Solomon, the wisest wisest man on earth, right? He can't can't figure out how to follow God. So then you get to the divided kingdom again. They're still trying to find their place in the world. They're trying to find their Messiah. And you have the southern kingdom, two tribes, right? Two tribes, 20 kings. Eight of them are good. None of them are the Messiah. Northern kingdom, 10 tribes. 19 kings. None of them good at all. So Assyria comes in takes the northern kingdom, scatters them to the four winds. People still don't know where they went. And then Babylon comes in and takes out the last two tribes and they're taken into exile. Daniel's taken into exile. It's his time. Seventy years later, after the Persians conquer them, they get back to the back to the uh, Israel. They rebuild Jerusalem, right? This is the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was really fun to say because you can say Zerubbabel temple and you can remember exactly what he did. He rebuilt the temple. But um, they looked at the temple and they cried. It wasn't good enough. They were waiting for a Messiah. After the Greeks, after the Romans, after the Maccabees, all the different things that happened, these people are still waiting for a Messiah. And so finally Simeon and Anna see the Messiah. I don't know if we necessarily understand the gravity of Jesus coming at Christmas. We like to think about all of the, you know, there's the cute nativity set with the donkey and the camel and all that. And we we ask questions like how many how many wise men were there? Is it really important how many wise men were there? Not really. What is important is the fact that the Messiah had come, has come. When we think about what Jesus represents at Christmas, we we eventually think of salvation, but we use a single name that I think maybe we need to focus on a little more, and that is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus' presence in our lives should change how we see the world around us, how we think about the world around us, and what is really important to us. It's a lot easier to treasure humble things and godly things when we focus on who Jesus is and the, his reality in our lives. It's a lot easier to focus on the fact that eventually Jesus is going to come again. And so all the hard things that we're dealing with, we're working through, it's going to be worth it. The Bible doesn't say what happened to Anna or Simeon after this. but I'm pretty sure they didn't go back to their lives and live the exact same life that they did before, knowing that the Messiah was here. When you think about Simeon's first statement in verse 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. Simeon's saying, "I'm, I'm ready to go, Lord. You're here. It's okay. So, I want you to focus on this the rest of the week. What does Jesus' presence in my life mean for me? And how does it change how I look at the world? And if you don't know what that means to have Jesus' presence in your life, I'd love to have a conversation with you about it. Because it changes everything. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, you are the Messiah, and we praise you as the Messiah. We name you Emmanuel, or you are named Emmanuel, I should say, but most of us don't live like God is with us. We don't realize that your presence is powerful. Lord, help us to follow you well, to love you well, and to live as if you're right here with us. Because you have come, and where you come there is peace. We ask your blessing on our time. We love you, Lord. Thank you for coming and for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Can you hear me now? We're going to close our service now. We... um you know, we've been focusing, we've been looking back and seeing God in the past year. And we're grateful for that. So we're going to sing the famous hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, that focuses on God's faithfulness. You know, not only in seeing us through this last year, but He's faithful and He sent His Son as a Messiah, as a Savior. God with us, living with us, enables us to be right with God. Boy, is there anything more important in our life than that, that God has been faithful for? So let's stand together and let's sing of God's great faithfulness.
1: Thanks, Eric. This was like men's Sunday. This was great. Um, We have coffee downstairs. If you'd like some, you're welcome to join us. Otherwise, have a great rest of your Christmas season. And yes, it is still Christmas season because I haven't had Christmas yet. So, you're dismissed. Nice, Chuck. I
0: don't
2: know what's going on super hoarse this morning.